This is Julie Rieger, author of The Ghost Photographer and co-host of Insider's Guide to the Other Side. And I'm Brenda Viam. I may not have written a book, but I'm in Julie's book. And you are the most gifted psychic on the planet. <laughs> Come on. Listen to Insider's Guide to the Other Side on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Brian, this is it, the last stop on our London tour. And who better to close it out than the Right Honorable The Lord Fellows of West Stafford? Say what? Katie, don't be so déclassé as you normally are. (laughs) I'm talking about Julian Fellows, the creator of one of my, and I know your, all-time favorite TV shows, Downton Abbey. That one? That was your most stirring rendition yet. You know, my wife actually uses that as her ringtone, so I hear it about 15 times a day. That's so funny. And Julian really is the man behind the show, the only man. He didn't have a writing staff for Downton. He penned every episode himself. Well, with a little help from his wife, Emma, his preferred second reader, Brian. Now, you and I are admittedly both very big fans. And in fact, my wife and I once hosted a premiere party at our home for Downton. Of course you did, Brian. (laughs) Now, I didn't have a party, but I was equally obsessed. And if you don't believe me, I actually retrieved some of my live tweets from that era. One was, Carson, fetch me some brandy. I'm retiring. I must get some rest to face tomorrow. By the way, Lady Mary getting on my nerves. Hashtag Downton PBS. Or, please let there be good things in store for Edith. If not, I'm going to find her a husband. Hashtag, I need to get a life. Yes, <laughs> that obviously, one was funny. I was really, really into Downton Abbey. So, Katie, one thing that really surprised me to learn about Julian for all of his successes is that he's actually the quintessential late bloomer. Things really started to go his way when he wrote the screenplay for Gosford Park and won an Oscar at 52. So, Brian, there's hope for you. Yeah, this is true and, and very encouraging as well, Katie. <laughs> so, we talked with Julian about Downton a lot and what it is about social class in the UK that fascinates him so much. We also, of course, covered the royal wedding, Julian's stint as a young actor in L.A., and we even had our first ever live listener cameo. That's right. A shout out to listener Jill Apple, who asked Lord Julian a kick-ass question about his writing for the stage. Uh, I'm really happy that Jill got to join us and observe our making magic in person. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if she's less impressed or more impressed now. <laughs> Probably the former. Meanwhile, to kick things off, I couldn't help myself. And on behalf of all you listeners who love Downton Abbey, I had to spend the first several minutes gushing. <laughs> We're very thrilled to have you, Mr. Julian Fellows. Thank you very much for being here. I don't think you should say Mr. Julian Fellows. Oh, okay, Lord. Either say Lord Fellows or Julian Fellows. Okay. Which I think would be more appropriate for this show. Okay, good. Thank you. I appreciate that. I need somebody like you around all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, Julian Fellows, welcome to our podcast. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. And we have so much to talk about because I'm obsessed with so many of the things that you do. First (laughs) off... I miss Lady Mary and Matthew Crawley and Edith and Lord and Lady Grantham and Anna and Bates and Carson. Do you? Of course. I mean, they they became so central to my life. I mean, this went on for seven or eight years because it ran for six years. Uh, And so they were, by the end, woven into the very woof of my thinking, you know. Uh, And of course... I mean, I'm not mad. They didn't become real, you know, but but uh, but they acquire a kind of spurious reality to you and you want them to be happy and you want things to work out, you know. So, uh, yes, I do. I mean, I, I don't regret ending the show. Uh, I, I think it had run its course. And I think with all of these things, well, with everything in life, uh, you know, you're, you're aware of coming to the end of a chapter that you have enjoyed very much, but it's time to move on. And I think we got to that point. There may be a film, of course. Uh, That's and- what we're hearing. I was I, I was worried it would go the way of Sex and the City 3. <laughs> to uh, which well, it's often compared, I'm sure. I, I never criticize anyone else's work. <laughs> it is as difficult to make a bad film as it is to make a good one. But um, 
I hope there is a film because I think it would be a nice sort of bon bouche way of finishing. And then everyone goes off and has the rest of their career. Can I ask a stupid question? What is bon bouche? Oh, it's when you're finishing a, a, a feed and everything, or you put all the delicious bits together in one mouthful and finish it and then the plate is empty. Ah. And is it a noun or a verb? Uh, it's a noun and an adjective. Bon, good, yes. bouche, mouthful. Oh, interesting. Sort of the opposite of a uh, amuse-bouche. Well, amuse-girl is a th- literally oh, here we go. A, a throat tickler, which is how you begin the feed. Not an amuse-bouche. Well, I suppose people could use amuse-bouche, but the normal phrase in France is amuse-girl. Interesting. Okay, I've learned something wow. today. Well, we have to getting back to uh, Downton, <laughs> and I'm sure we're going to learn many other things from you, Julian. Why in the world did Matthew get killed off? Well, darling um, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to. I thought you were calling me darling. No, uh, everyone. <laughs> you know, the first question I get asked is, "Why did Matthew have to die?" Uh, and the truth is. Dan Stevens, who is a lovely chap, very, very nice man, uh, and was wonderful as Matthew, uh, but he felt that it was time for him to move on. You see, in England, you can only get actors for three years before you have to renegotiate. In America, you tend to get them for five, but here it's three. And after the first three years, you'll never get them for more than two. So all the time, you're renegotiating. And um, Matthew had been offered a Oh, Dan had been offered a, a film and he'd been offered a play on Broadway and Diddly Donk. And he decided it was time to move on. My problem was that right from the beginning, Jessica Brown Findlay has said, I'm doing three years and then that's it. Well, when a servant character says that, they get another job. There's no problem. Off they go. You know, O'Brien goes off to work for Lady Flincher. Fine. Goodbye. But when a family member is never going to be seen again, it's the Grim Reaper. And so <laughs> we did various bits of research and um, and we discovered that uh, eclampsia uh, was still a big killer in the 20s. It was only really in the 30s that they started to get on top of it as a condition. Uh, and really, in the 20s, the only treatment was to have an early caesarean. And even that was by no means uh, always successful. But once you had started to fit, have fits, uh, then you were going to die. And what I also discovered was that there was in many, many, many instances this false ending where you seemed all right, the baby was born, everything was fine, and that would last for maybe two or three hours, and then the fitting started again and you died. Of course, as I read this, I thought, but this is ideal for television (laughs) because we have the happy ending followed by the tragedy. Uh Um, And that was what I went for, and we wrote it, and I thought, well, I'll kill her in episode five, and then they've got three to get over it, you know, and all of that. And that character was, of course, one of my favorites. Oh, she was wonderful. And Jessica was wonderful in the part. But that was all done and dusted. Written, director found, cast. And then we get to the read-through. And and Dan comes up and says, I've been thinking about this. And I've decided to leave too. (laughs) And I I said, but you can't. (laughs) And he... I said, how about you, you, we have happy ending Christmas, the baby, and then you come back and next year we'll kill you in episode one. He said, no, I, I just feel I've come to the end of this and I, it's time for me to move on, which of course I understand. I'm not, you know, I, I remember being an actor and you, you have to go with your gut. There's no other guide. You must do what you feel. So I thought, oh, blimey, because if I'd known they were both going, then they would have gone over the cliff in a car or something. So I had to kill him off, but I couldn't do any more memorials, funerals, because then the whole series would turn into six feet under. (laughs) And and so the only way to get round that was to kill him in the last shot of the show. The problem of that was that in England, the last episode was played on Christmas night. So suddenly there was a a whole British population watching Downton, putting in that one mince pie too many, and suddenly, (laughs) boof, 
<laughs> and you should see the letters I got after that. Really? I thought How I was going to have to you? leave the country. Really? I will never watch anything with your name on it again. Because you personally had killed him. I'd killed him. And I'd killed him out of malice. Yes. You know, the idea that Dan wanted to go didn't seem to occur to anyone. So, Julian, let's go back a bit to where this all started. How was the idea of Downton Abbey conceived? Well, I don't know if you remember, but uh, years ago I wrote a film, the first film I wrote that got made, actually. For which you won uh, an Oscar. For which I won an and Oscar. which we'll discuss in a little bit. But yes, oh, I'm a huge oh, fan okay. of Gosford Park. Well, that was Gosford Park. And um, Gareth Neem had been uh, a producer, television producer, had been watching it. And he suddenly thought, I wonder if we could go into this territory for television. And I knew him because we'd been trying to set up, actually, funnily enough, something completely different, which didn't get off the ground. But I knew him, and we were having dinner. I think we met for dinner to talk about it. And he put the idea to me of going back into that territory. And, of course, I said, well, we've got to go back, because the whole point of Gosford Park was that the subtext was that it was all coming to an end. And so we went back 20 years from 1932 to 1912. Um because we didn't want to start at the end. Uh, and funnily enough, initially, I rather resisted it. You know, I thought, oh, I don't know, asking for a second helping, you know. But uh, <laughs> then I started to sort of toy with the idea. And, and I was reading a book about the American heiresses, the so-called buccaneers who had married into the peerage in the last sort of uh, 20 years of the 19th century and up to the First World War, really. Uh, and I and I found myself thinking, well, we all know about those lovely young American Debs running down the gangplank into the arms of a Marquis. But what was it like 20 years later when they were sitting in some freezing house in Staffordshire, longing to be back on Rhode Island? And um, And I thought that would be fun to explore, the American heiress, but later when she'd lived the life in England. And she had that thing, which you see among all our friends, where your children are a different nationality from yourself. And they have different prejudices and different assumptions. And how do people deal with that, which interests me anyway. And so in that sense, Cora Grantham was born. And, and then, you know, I, I don't know if you write for television, but uh, when you've started to imagine characters, you have actually in, accepted the job, even if you don't know it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so that's how it began. And the relationship between Cora and Mary is so delicious because <laughs> Mary almost thinks of her own mother as unworthy of her class. Well, that really came from a very grand English friend of mine uh, who was born in a great family and married into a great family and so on. A fa fabulous woman. But she had had an American mother. Uh, and I always noticed that when she spoke of her mother, there was a sort of faint air of tolerance, you know, that, that <laughs> she was a good woman at heart and must be forgiven her foibles, you know. And, and I'm sure that came from having an American mother. And as I watched it, I, I found it so amusing that I thought when I was putting the series together that that would be fun to mine. There has been some criticism, of course, um, and it basically is that by showing the upper class as essentially benevolent and kind and exhibiting a sort of nostalgia for that period when people knew their place, you were yourself sending a political message. There's a, there's a labor leader in Britain named Francis O'Grady who said, unfortunately, Britain is becoming like Downton Abbey in the sense that the living standards of the vast majority are sacrificed to protect the high living of the well-to-do and in, in saying so, he was he was criticizing Downton. Um, really? Well, that was in the context of that. So, what what is your kind of response to a number of people who said that it wasn't perceived as equal the two classes? Well, they weren't equal at that time. I what mean, in mean? terms of their intentions and character, that you were essentially portraying the upper class as more sympathetically than uh, the servants downstairs. Oh, I don't think that's true at all. I like the I, servants more I, than the... But, you know, <laughs> the yeah. servants were often people's favourite characters, and something like the romance of Anna and Bates was absolutely as seriously dramatised as the romance of Matthew and Mary. I, I think that is false. What I think is 
not false is that it wasn't an equal society and there is a limit to how much you can throw a kind of pink cloud over the past. You you have to represent their values, the contemporary values, reasonably honestly. I mean, when um, Tom, we were dealing with Thomas's homosexuality, for instance, we couldn't immediately have every sympathetic character saying, oh, this is great, because <laughs> in 1912, that wouldn't be their response. And so what I strove for was to have some people who didn't mind, like Robert Grantham or Mrs. Hughes, Carson, who was rather offended by the whole thing, and so on. So it would be reasonably balanced. But, uh, I, I, you know, I think you are bound to do that if you're representing a period in history. But um, I, I don't think it was uh, a benevolent view. I mean, these I heard one guy on television in America say the terrible injustice of the show was that I, Julian Fellows, had portrayed the upper classes as likable. Well, you know, that's just nonsense. I mean, in any group of people, some people are likable, some people are not. Some of them are good looking, some are not. Some of them are clever, some of them are stupid. And that's true of any class, of any nationality, of any religion, of any social grouping you can find. And the idea that one class is unlikable is as reasonable as saying one people has rhythm or one people is good with money. It's all nonsense. And and so I would absolutely reject that. One of the most moving, I think, many there are many moving moments in the series, but they often occur when the two classes meet. And in this scene that we're about to hear is when Mary's husband, Matthew, dies in a car crash, as we mentioned, and her butler, Carson, consoles her. Let's listen. <laughs> You have a good cry. That's what's needed now. <laughs> and when you're ready, you can get to work. Because you are strong enough. <laughs> you're strong enough for the task. But am I, Carson? That's the point. Papa doesn't seem to think so. Don't you owe it to Mr. Crawley to protect his work? To fight for the changes he made? To steer Downton in the right direction? I know I can always count on you for a draft of self-confidence whenever I start to doubt. And you will always find one here. There's was such, <laughs> you know, theirs was such a tender relationship. It is so moving. And, you know, you listen to that and you realize how critically important the right music is, right? <laughs> I was I thinking mean, not exactly only that. the delivery. Well, John but... Lunn, of course, was one of the big stars of the series. I mean, his theme tune alone made you half cry. So, I mean, he was wonderful. But I, I mean, what people don't seem to understand is that, uh, whether the system was just or unjust, you don't want people in your house, in your sight, helping you every day, helping you get dressed, helping you arrange everything, whom you don't like. Obviously, you want to work with people you like. And, uh, of course, with with the upper servants. I mean, I'm not pretending everyone was tremendously friendly with their kitchen maid, but uh, with the upper servants, with the butler, with the lady's maid, with the valet... Uh, Often these friendships occurred. And remember the children of a great house mixed very freely with the servants and often were fed downstairs and ran in and out of the kitchen and ate the cake mix and all that stuff went on when they were growing up because it was generally thought that it was bad for children to be too snotty. And so, for instance, a child had to address the butler as Mr. Carson. His, his parents would call him Carson, but the child would call him Mr. Carson. So there was a kind of balance going on all the time, which now, I mean, because people want to condemn that way of life uh, for their own reasons, some of them perfectly valid. I mean, I'm not 
criticising that. But because they want to condemn it, they have to represent it as completely horrible. Whereas, obviously, you wouldn't want to be attended at your dressing table by someone you loathed. I mean, it's, it's not realistic. And when the system collapsed after the war, for, for I mean, not for everyone, but for most people, uh, it was often the valets and the maids who stayed on as companions and all-round housekeepers and all the rest of it, because they were already so intimate. We'll talk about how you became so fascinated by class in a moment, but I want to mention that you deal with many tough issues. You mentioned Thomas's homosexuality, but you talk a lot about women's rights. You talk about, as you mentioned, the abysmal sort of state of medical care back then, sexual assault, war and peace. I mean, all sorts of big, thorny issues. You were trying to help people understand history, but really more than that, weren't you? Yes. I mean, you know, we were accused of being nostalgic because there are elements with sort of women in beautiful clothes strolling around some wonderful lawn with a house in the background, you know, and you drink a glass of wine and everything feels great. But the truth was it was a period of great change. And many of the issues we are dealing with now, you find in the kernel there. I mean, women's rights really in the second half of the 19th century were building and building and building and building in a way that they weren't in the 18th century. Uh, I mean, you get some instances of people saying, why are we living in this system? But by the second half of the 19th, there was a, a kind of gathering head of steam that would end in major change. And that generation of women, I know we now say, oh, they were only being secretaries, they were only being this, they were only being that. But in fact, they were forging the way forward. They were wholly admirable. Uh, and it is because of them that their granddaughters are now running ICR. It's true because you would see Edith's ascension and you would see Sybil taking on a much more active role, Mary learning sort of how to run sure. sort of the estate. So you saw you saw glimpses of that even culminating in real advancements. But I was shocked to learn that you wrote the show entirely on your own. Well, not entirely on your own. You had one editor, and I'm curious uh, well, who she was and what her role was. You know, I mean, I think, you know, everything is a group effort. Uh, and certainly everything in entertainment is a group But you effort. had no writer's room. You had no, you know, staff I had no ten. other writers. I, I had my wife to deal with. She read it first. This is very boring, you know. This, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. He would never say this. Uh, and so I had to deal with all that first. And then I had Gareth Neem, who I was talking about, uh, and Liz Truebridge, and who was our sort of line producer on set. She was really uh, at the front, you know. Um, and the three of us would get the scripts to a point where we were happy with them. And only then did they go on to um, PBS and ITV and everything else. Uh, but they were very accommodating, you know. I mean, they would, ITV would give us notes, but they didn't insist. If we had a reason for not uh, implementing the note, they, they, they were great. I mean, they were, for me, perfect to work with. I really enjoyed our collaboration with ITV. But I mean, so in that sense, you can see that it isn't quite right to say you're sitting alone as a sort of stylite on a column writing this series and throwing it down because it's, it is a bit of a group effort. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk to you, Julian, about your years as an aspiring actor, the fact that you actually auditioned for a role in Fantasy Island, which I find <laughs> impossible to you believe. You understand why he didn't get that role. <laughs> what do you mean? That and was we'll, my big chance. <laughs> we'll also talk a little bit about your childhood and how you became fascinated by class and this period in history. And also, Brian's here, so we're going to talk about politics as well. So we'll do that right after this. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most? There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. 
There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind. So find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout and now back to our conversation with the great julian fellows you grew up in a house Near London in Chiddingly, which I just love saying. Chiddingly, but yes. Oh, I love it even more now. (laughs) You described your dad, who was a diplomat and later worked at Shell Oil, as, this is such a delicious quote, one of the last generation of men who lived in a pat of butter without knowing it. My mother put him on a train on Monday mornings and drove up to London in the afternoon. At the flat, she'd be waiting in a snappy little cocktail dress with a delicious dinner and drink. Lovely, really. Do you really wish it were still like that? I I, I, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> I'm trying to say no. Um, the truth is, we've changed. And, and in, That's a very in, political answer. And in the change, you lose some aspects. I mean, all reform is double-bladed. And some things go that were actually, if you're honest, were rather nice. But we're different people now. Well, nice, nicer for some than others. Nicer for some than others and probably rather tiresome for the woman in the cocktail dress. But nevertheless, they were very happy. They worked out who did what. They were, you know, uh, my mother died a little too young, but... Um, you were it, saying your parents, not all women necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, not all women. And I think women had a tough time. And I'm, uh, a, you know, a feminist in that sense and quite a convinced one, as I believe my writing bears out. Um, but in every generation and in every civilization and in every period of history, people have to work out how to deal with it and how to deal with the society in which they are living. Some people are prepared to make war on it for their whole life long, but most of us are not. We need to find a way of being in our own time that we can just about manage and cope with. And I think that's what we're dealing with there. My parents were children that they married in the 30s, and they went through the war, and they went through the 50s. And essentially, by the time the swinging 60s arrived, they were settled as personalities. But it was because of their very different backgrounds, Julian, that you became really interested in how class played out and how random it was in terms of how you were treated and your station in life. Yes, I think that is true, actually. Although, of course, it took time for me to articulate it and really become aware. My father came from, you know, one of those families. I mean, very younger son-ish. I mean, he was, his father was a younger son uh, who'd gone to Canada and bought a ranch and then died in the First World War. So that was all abandoned and he came back. But he had um, fleets of aunts and great aunts and things who sort of brought him up by committee. Uh, They all loathed my grandmother, but because she was a sort of flapper and rather wild. But but nevertheless, she came from the same background as they did. Uh, But my father fell in love with my mother, who was very different. Her, Her uh, I mean, she wasn't, you know, selling violets in Covent Garden, but, um, <laughs> but her father was a civil servant. They lived in the suburbs. She uh, didn't really form part of that setup at all. She hadn't been presented. She wasn't a Deb, all of that. And uh, they fell in love. She was a great beauty. And my great aunts thought she had caught him. And they never 
really changed. And they eventually tolerated her because she had been delivered of four healthy sons. And so she had done her dynastic duty in that sense. They thought she was a gold digger a bit. Well, if only they'd been more gold. But um, (laughs) uh, they thought she was, as they used to say, bettering herself Mm. by the marriage. And my father was a simpleton and had been ensnared, was really their analysis. And all through my childhood, we, we were not punished for this. We were four files of the sacred blood. So we would be taken to tea with my great aunts and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, they never said, oh, do stay, you know. And mummy would say, when should I come for them? Five o'clock. There, there was never any sense of, why did you have to go? You know, why don't you stay and have a cup of tea? Absolutely not. And when you're a child, you don't completely know what's going on, but you know something's going on. And you pick up a kind of vibe. And then gradually, when I was, I suppose, about 12, 13, I started to understand the game that was being played and the randomness of it. And I remember one of them actually making my mother cry once on the telephone. And I suddenly saw the sort of cruelty of these random, as you say, arbitrary decisions as to who you are. To what extent does the class system you described still exist in the UK? I mean, of course, it used to be fashionable in the 70s to say it was completely finished and over and nobody even knew it was there, which was nonsense then and it's nonsense now. Um, All I would say is I think we are more American than we used to be and you can make the journey in less time and people who are very successful and do well are entertained and received and make friends with, uh, you know, the old founder members and so on, I think much more easily. But it's still an advantage to be born where you're going to be educated very, very well and people are going to help you get into the whatever the industry or business is that you want and your parents are going to ring up and say, Bobby, I don't want to be a nuisance, but do you know, I've got my son coming in for an interview on Tuesday. <laughs> and all that. and I, I just think that's human nature, really. I mean, in the end, America, I think, is as as near socially mobile as any modern country can hope to be in a capitalist system, which involves inequity of income. I mean, that is part of the capitalist system, unless you're going to have a communist system and control everyone's income. But that has byproducts, which are not attractive to live with, which is why the system collapsed in pretty well all the countries where it was implemented. So, you know, you're you're choosing... I mean, I think Churchill said democracy is the worst system in the world except for all the others. And, and I think uh, a capitalist democracy is the worst possible system except for everything else. And But, uh, you know, even in America, there are entitled people, there are privileged people. And that, huge... Income inequality and huge disparity, I think. And since you're comparing the two countries, this is the perfect segue for me to ask you about the royal wedding. (laughs) Because here you have a biracial American marrying Prince Harry. And I'm curious what you made of the royal wedding and how the royal family responded and the rest of, of Britain. I don't really like to talk about the royal family. Why? Um, Well, my wife's in the household and everything, and it's kind of awkward for her. But, uh, I mean, I thought the the royal wedding was a very happy day. I think uh, uh, the Duchess of Sussex is a very interesting woman. She seems to have had an interesting life. She's got uh, views and opinions that seem very much to be in tune with the way the world is now, and that can only be good. And uh, the royal family has made a point of showing how keen they are on and how pleased they are she's joined the team. And so I think it's a wholly positive happening, you know, for the whole institution. Hurrah, say I. Well, let's go back to your life. 
You went to Cambridge, then you studied at a drama academy in London, and then you moved to L.A., which is sort of the last thing I'd expect somebody like you to do, and you pursued an acting career and also did some writing. Um, As Katie mentioned, (laughs) you auditioned to replace Tattoo on Fantasy Island. Um, You even played some slapstick comedy roles. So how did you get into all of that? Well, the reason I went to California was really... Because at that time, um, English theatre scene was very left-wing, was very... uh, It was this season of working-class actors, wonderful, wonderful act. Albert Finney, Alan Bates, Tom Courtney, a a very, very rich crop. But I would have been more right for the generation before, the sort of roar like a dove in in the West End, you know, with... Uh, actresses in white fox coming down the red carpet. And that wasn't the industry that I'd come into. Uh, And I did find it very hard to break through that prejudice. I mean, I was once lectured by a casting director at the National saying, your kind, we feel your kind of actor is happier in the West End. And that was when the director had asked for me. And I thought, well, you know, if the director asks for me and I don't get the job, I, I better try something different. And so I went to California. In fact, in the end, it was a Californian in the person of Robert Altman who gave me my big writing break. That's which right. I on don't Gosford think I would Park. have got, you know, he reached out of a different industry and gave me my break. So I'm not sure it's completely changed, but it is now looser than it used to be. Um, but anyway, that was the reason I went to California and, and I had a very good time. It was a moment in my life, really, when I was up for a change. My mother had just died after a long illness, after a long time with cancer. And that was part of the reason I left the country. I just thought, well, let's have a new start. Let's let's have a new beginning and do something different. And I was in Los Angeles for about two and a half years. Uh, but the, the problem was I kept getting work in England. So I was always kind of flying back and flying back and flying back and flying back. Uh, and in the end, I thought, I've got a better career in England. I just have to get used to that. And I remember what decided me was I went up for a film called Baby, The Secret of the Lost Legend. This was the only unsuccessful dinosaur film. But (laughs) anyway, I, I tried to get an audition. I read this part, you know, in some breakdown. And I thought, God, this is dead right for me. And I tried to get an audition in Los Angeles, and they wouldn't see me. And I then flew back to London for something else. And my agent rang me and said, well, while you're here, I've got an audition for a film called Baby, The Secret of the Lost Legend. And I I went up for it, and I got the part. And I asked the director, I said, but why wouldn't you see me in Los Angeles? He said, oh, well, we felt all the really good English actors we'd find in London. So I thought, well, I don't know what I'm doing in L.A. And that was when I came back. But I enjoyed L.A. And actually, when I got to Hollywood and I was doing television and little parts in TV movies and things, I thought, no, this is what interests me. I Because I'd go to rehearsal for a play. I'd learn my lines. I'd rehearse it. I'd play it. It would either run or it wouldn't run. And that would be fine. Uh, and... I never got involved in the whole process, but with film, I'd be sitting there and I'd think, why is he taking that off the microphone? Why is he putting that furry sock on it? Why is the lighting guy fiddling with the light now that it's a smaller, tighter shot, you know? And I thought, this is where I belong. Well, clearly you did, because when you were 52, I guess, you were asked to write the screenplay for Gosford Park by Robert Altman. And I think you wrote it in six weeks' time, at least that's what I read, or came back with a lot of pages, maybe 75 pages after six weeks. And you presented them. And Bob Balaban, who it was in the movie, who we I know a little bit from New York, uh, said it was just brilliant. And here you were... Uh, not super successful actor, and you got this new well, I lease wasn't on bad life. By then, <laughs> I had a running part in a very successful series. Sorry, which, which was I that? interlarded with the making of Gosford Park, and I took 
the Oscar when I won it onto the set of Monarch of the Glen. And if you look very carefully, there is a scene where Molly is in the library at Glen Bogle and I come in to see her and the the lamp on the desk is a lampshade and a golden pair of legs coming out of the bottom of it just to mark the fact. But actually, So you were, you were a successful actor when you entered into this amended. new realm. I amend my previous statement. Uh, yes, it was. I mean, it was extraordinary because I'd written some children's series for the BBC, but I mean, you know, it was in a different league and I'd written this film. And of course, at the beginning, I never thought it would get made because that all seemed unrealistic. You know, it was like a sort of plot of a Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland musical. You know, we can, hey, we can put on this show and put a roof on the school hall, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and suddenly it started to become real. And Bob flew me to California to work on the script. And then he flew here on his way to Venice for the festival to do some more notes for a, for another draft. And the next thing we knew, he'd moved here and we were standing on the set, you know. So it was a very extraordinary experience. And of course, the cast he assembled, because it was clearly going to be the only Robert Altman film. And if you were a British actor and you wanted to be in a Robert Altman film, this was the picture. So practically everyone he asked to do it said yes. And this incredible, it was like, you remember those films of sort of MGM oh, in yes. 1940 when they were all having lunch together and the camera would go down the table and everyone famous would be there. That was what the set of Gosford Park was like. It must have been such a thrill. And then, of course, to win the Academy Award. You've also enjoyed taking movies you've loved and turning them into plays or theatrical productions. Case in point, uh, you did it with School of Rock. You also did it with Mary Poppins. I understand you're doing it with Wind in the Willows. And I met over Instagram, my favorite social media platform, a lovely New Yorker now living in London named Jill Apple. Jill and I started communicating, direct messaging each other. This, I'll teach you how to do all this, Julian, after our podcast. And I invited Jill to come to this taping. So we thought it would be fun for Jill to ask you a question because she's a big fan of yours as well. So, Jill, take it away. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me. Um, I am excited to meet you, and oh. I'm a proud musical theater nerd. And um, as Katie said, you brought um, Mary Poppins and School of Rock to the stage from film. And I was wondering what the biggest challenge is of bringing something that's loved and already a solid thing to the stage. Well, Mary Poppins was an interesting challenge, actually, because it wasn't only a film. It was also a series of books. To me, as a child, it was only the books. To my wife, she didn't even know there were books. And so... I had to produce an adaptation that was undisappointing to both groups. And uh, and really what we were trying to do there, which is similar to School of Rock, is to make it less of a niche market and more of an all-round so that adults would enjoy it as well as children in that case or with School of Rock so that adults who weren't particularly interested in rock music would have a good evening uh, while, you know, people who were crazy about rock uh, would love the show because they'd love the film. So in, in a sense, you're trying to broaden it, really, and give it broader appeal. In Mary Poppins, I particularly used the mother, Mrs Banks, for that because in the film she'd been a, a suffragette and we did feel the zeitgeist was quite right now for she thinks women should have votes isn't that a joke uh it, it didn't seem right for now uh and in the book she hardly exists there's one drawing of her crying on the stairs and that's it so she's the one you've got freedom with and i made her into this woman who is essentially being bullied by her husband i mean in a loving way but bullied nevertheless and during the show she finds the strength to kick back and by the end of the show their marriage is an even one which gives it a grown-up storyline to you know go with the things that are fun from the film and from the books. Uh, School of Rock was different because School of Rock wasn't a book. School of Rock was an original script for a movie, uh, a brilliant script and a marvellous film. Uh, but uh, again, the film was very much a, a Jack Black vehicle uh, and we needed to make it 
uh, a broader thing. Uh, and also, I wanted us to get to know the children more than you do in the film, so that you would know the children's parents, you would know the predicament they're all battling against, uh, and all the rest of it. And we would see, you know, a hundred things you can do wrong when you're bringing up a child, you know, uh, which any parent is familiar with and usually guilty of. Uh, I know I am. <laughs> uh, and so that was a whole new dimension. But it was, again, really to give it broad appeal so that any age, you know, really, I think from, you know, children can go to School of Rock with their grandparents. And there are uh, enough jokes and and enough things that will touch them yeah. that they will have a good evening. My but, kids are five and nine, and we've now seen it, I think, five times in between New York and London now. They oh, love that's it. so nice to hear. That's <laughs> yeah, they lovely. Love it. I know every word to every song. Really? <laughs> she yes. paid for your tie, Julian. You didn't even know it. <laughs> no, I'm really pleased. Yeah, that's they love lovely. It. Yeah. And I love it too. I think it's great. And the kids, I mean, w one of the interesting things was we we were amazed by how many children we found who could play these instruments. And, I mean, Andrew, I say we, it was all, obviously, Andrew and Lawrence were, were uh, looking for them. But we thought we would have to delay the opening in London because we wouldn't be able to find them. Actually, we could have had another three casts, you know, and we had to put the audience clearly uh, in the picture that the children were playing because we thought otherwise they they're going to think, you. oh, someone's playing the real instrument and these don't have sound. That's one uh, of the most fun parts, I think, is yes. that the children are so talented oh, and they're such absolutely. incredible musicians. And the guitar stuff, and, I, I mean, incredible. That's why Andrew always says, you know, they are playing live. I love that. Well, Jill, thank you very much thank for you. coming in. We're gonna, I'm going to have you, you come nice. in later. I'm, I'm worried she might take my job, so I need to get her oh, out stop. of here. But <laughs> we're going to have you come in later, Jill, to talk about how much you love the podcast. I will. Before we go to modern times, uh, I, I want to go back in time a bit and ask you how you feel about The Crown. Because I, uh, I am almost as obsessed with The Crown as I was Downton Abbey. He thought he liked you, but... I, <laughs> <laughs> I, the Crown is a wonderful piece of work uh, and a brilliant, brilliant writing from Peter Morgan. Um, I always, no, it's not a but. I wouldn't say but because I think it was very, very well done. It was beautifully acted, beautifully written. Uh, for me... I'm not completely comfortable with dramatizing people who are still alive and still living their lives. And, um, and because I think it's possible to be unfair. And in the uh, second series, I didn't think it was fair to uh, Prince Philip, to the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, based on very little. Now, I'll be punished for that because, you know, it's a great success and it deserves to be. But I... I don't know. I think when people are still alive, living their lives, doing a good job uh, and popular and loved, do they deserve it? And and in that sense, I, I, I'm not sure they do. Do you sense that or do you believe that a lot of artistic license was taken in the storylines in terms of how these individuals have been portrayed in the series? You're getting me into a tricky area here. Um, oh, goody. I, I think that uh, a lot of it was based on, obviously, very good research, uh, but some of it was not, and some of it was extrapolation from a rumour or uh, someone's rather prejudiced account, and then it was presented as fact, and I, I'm not sure that's just... Let's move to contemporary. But I'm a big fan of Peter Morgan. I repeat that. I think he's the best writer on television at the moment and, uh, you know, and is deservedly successful as far as I'm concerned. And certainly has a massive budget. Were you jealous of that? I mean, I think probably you did too, Julian. But <laughs> <laughs> Not on that scale. That was, I think, that was the most expensive television series ever made. Isn't it like it? ten? Am I am I crazy to say ten million dollars an episode? Something like that, I think, and you can see it in almost every shot. But I feel me. that Downton looked as expensive. Not that I'm being defensive on your behalf. <laughs> Very good. 
<laughs> I like to encourage that. <laughs> um, let's move to contemporary times. You were for Brexit quite vocally. Why? Uh, I feel that the European Union uh, was born of a perfectly understandable need to avoid another world war, and that was the sort of birth of it. But inevitably, uh, it was a, a protectionist organization in the 70s, uh, and it, it hasn't really been able to move forward because it is sort of glued in the position it took then. Uh, and there are certain aspects. I mean, the fact that they haven't been able to sign off their accounts for 25 years now uh, or more, um, the fact that uh, you know, these people, Juncker, are unelected. We can't do anything to get rid of them. I mean, this is uh, a, a system of government that belongs in the 18th century. This is Maria Theresa of Austria, not something in the 21st century. Uh, the Third World has a terrible time trying to trade with Europe because of all the limits that are put on any outsider. Uh, you know, I think people don't know about a lot of this. The imposition of the euro, which really was fine for the northern economies, Germany, France, the, the Benelux countries and so on. But the whole of southern Europe is crippled. I mean, 50% youth unemployment, Greece teetering on the brink of being a failed state. Now, if I felt it was capable of reform, then uh, I might have a different view because I liked originally the idea of collaboration and common trade and all of that stuff. That seems so, uh, so much more reasonable to most people, I think. Yes, and I think that was good. But that isn't really the situation that obtains now. It's great for bankers and they have their passports and they make squillions of money. But, uh, you know, that isn't really the problem these days to ensure that bankers keep their rates up. Uh, I've got nothing against them. Good luck to them, say I. But I don't think it is worth hog-tying a country in order to protect the banking elite. But you thought that remaining was just too costly for Britain? I think, uh, why would you remain in something that is unsound and unsatisfactory? A big feature of the pro-Brexit campaign was that famous bus driving around the UK that said that the British people would save 350 million pounds a week and that money could be put into the NHS. Well, almost the opposite is happening, that the British economy, according to many, has lost almost that exact amount in GDP. So the trade restrictions could cost the UK billions. So what's your response to that criticism? Well, first, uh, it's not you can't very well criticize Brexit for what it promised when it hasn't happened yet. Uh, obviously, the money we pay into the EU is not released until Brexit has taken place. So that is, forgive me, a spurious question. Uh, as for the other things, yes, the pound went down, which of course was extremely good for exports uh, and, and, you know, less good for imports. And that's called the way of the world. Uh, and also our unemployment is lower than it's been since the 1970s. So, a great deal of the world, you know, we're going to have to have an emergency a budget. We're, going, we're all going to be busking in Leicester Square, you know, within five minutes of the referendum going against them. All of that was nonsense. Now, I'm not saying the Brexiteers didn't speak nonsense too. As a general rule, both sides spoke nonsense. Uh, and it is extremely difficult to predict with any accuracy what is going to come to pass. But you also have to remember to get any trade agreement while we are in the EU, we need not only the agreement of 27 other countries, we need the agreement of all the regions of those 27 other countries. So to arrange the, the trade agreement with Canada took something like four years, five years. I mean, this is not a way to run an economy in the 21st century. It is anti-trade. So uh, while I think there will obviously obviously be disadvantages. And I very much hope we can continue to collaborate on security, on health, on science, research, all of these areas, uh, space. I think there are many places where Europe uh, and this country should pull together. As I may say, 
they already collaborate with countries like Switzerland that are not in the EU. So this isn't an unreachable dream. This is uh, a situation that already has been implemented. Uh, and as much cooperation as we can do, I think that's great. Uh, and I think most of the British look forward to the time when this antagonism and, and kind of arm wrestling comes to an end and we can all just rub along together with our neighbours. I don't feel myself in the least anti-European when it comes to the people of Europe. Uh, far from it. Uh, not at all. Julian, but how much of Brexit was fueled by anti-immigration sentiment? Because it was certainly portrayed in many quarters and interpreted by many in the United States that this was a massive rejection of the influx of immigrants coming into the UK. Well, this is a, a more complicated issue than I think people grasped in America. Uh, I mean, the irony being that the refugees coming out of Syria or wherever it is, uh, of course, are unaffected by Brexit because they're not part of the EU. It's only the European immigrants who are affected. Uh, and it is certainly true that our economy requires immigration. It has always required immigration, uh, both in the short term for things like the agricultural economy and in the long term. In the NHS, which you were talking about, we're very dependent on immigrant uh, labour and doctors, nurses, and so on. National Health Service, I should uh, just mention. Yeah. And, and I think that's perfectly true. But where I feel people are being a little dishonest is that if you are a member of the so-called elite, uh, and all of us three are, we don't concern ourselves with not getting into the school we want or not being able to find a doctor who'll take us on his list or not being able to get onto the list of a dentist. Or I mean, None of this bothers us because we do what we like and we go where we want. But there are people who, whose the local infrastructure simply cannot cope. And what we have to do is not, I think, try and restrict immigration to a ludicrous degree, because I don't think our economy would sustain that anyway. And I don't think most people want it. But what I think they want is a measure of control. That is all. And at the moment, we have no control. And I don't really believe that wanting to be in control is an unreasonable wish. Of course, it's always portrayed by the Remainers as this sort of savagely hostile position. But America has control over its immigration uh, and quite tough control, actually. Particularly these days. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, well, it always did. I mean, speaking as someone who went to America a lot, you know, uh, and, uh, and so it should. It didn't mean they didn't welcome immigrants because they did. Uh, and they've, America, like Britain, has always had a very strong uh, affinity with with their immigrant population, but it it doesn't mean that you suddenly you know Germany suddenly said no control and woof in and now Mrs Merkel is paying for it. So I think it's a more complicated issue than people are prepared to admit. Really, there's a lot of anti-immigration sentiment in the U.S. right now espoused by President Trump, and I'm curious. I'm sure you stay up on current affairs across the pond, as they say. What do you think about Donald Trump and the job he's doing as president? And not only in terms of his policies, but in terms of his personal style. No, that isn't a question for me. As far as I'm concerned, the American people have elected him president. And so he's the president of the United States. And that's as much as I engage, really. Well, in your own country, uh, here in Britain, Prime Minister Theresa May is a conservative like you. Uh, she's been consumed by Brexit uh, since she took that job. How do you think she's handling the issue? Oh, I, I think Theresa May, who must have accepted the most poisoned chalice since 1066, <laughs> is doing amazingly well. And, uh, you know, they had this election campaign that didn't work out well. Uh, and so she was given a very difficult house to manage. Uh, and I think she has done astonishingly, given the fact that one hand was tied behind her back from the day one. Uh, and so, you know, she has my admiration. How she 
eventually manages to wrestle this whole thing to the floor remains to be seen. Since you would not take the bait with my first question about President Trump and shut me down pretty quickly, I'm going to just try one more time. Which should he be welcome to the UK for a state visit in your view? America is our most senior ally. And it is an alliance which I think is treasured by most of the population of these islands. Uh, we share a common language, we share a common history. And even though, uh, you know, we've had our bumpy ride, as, <laughs> the, the, beginning. as the musical <laughs> Hamilton tells us, nevertheless, it was pretty soon after American independence that the alliance was re-established. Uh, and we have never fallen out seriously since. Uh, and for that reason, I think it is a good thing to entertain the head of state that the Americans have chosen. But as someone who seems to me to be the epitome of decorum and good manners, I have to ask you about the way the president conducts himself. I, I just have to, because, Julian, you're so the antithesis of, of the way he presents. And, and I just, you, you must be sort of amazed at times by his, his style. Not sufficiently amazed to talk about it on the radio. <laughs> he's very good at ducking and evading. You forget he's a politician as well. <laughs> yeah, that's All right. Well, we're going to do a quick lightning round in conclusion. Um, so you can just tell us briefly about these things. Downton Abbey the movie. Well, I, I very much hope for Downton Abbey the movie. Uh, I've written Downton Abbey the movie, but obviously I'm not the guy who makes these decisions. And you have to remember, all the actors are stars now. We're trying to gather together a group of people who have many commitments and offers. And that really is like herding cats. In some ways, thanks to Downton Abbey and thanks to you, which is great. Yeah, great. No, I mean, I love that. I love the fact they've all taken wing and you look at Lily James or Rose or whatever, and I just think... Go, girl, you know, uh, and I love that. <laughs> what about Gypsy, the movie starring Barbara Streisand? I have to say her name correctly, Streisand. Is that happening? I simply don't know because I'm now off that. I, I wrote uh, a version of the script and I worked with Miss Streisand um, uh, for a while, which I enjoyed very, very much. Uh, and I liked her a lot. She is a real character. She really is. I mean, I feel very privileged working with Maggie and her and all these other uh, luminaries because, I mean, she was the shining star of my youth and she's still going strong. So I hope it's happening, but that's all I can say. Before we go, there's this iconic scene from season one that I just want to play and discuss very briefly. Then I promise we'll let you get to the House of Lords. You'll soon get used to the way things are done here. If you mean that I'm accustomed to a very different life from this, then that is true. What will you do with your time? I've got a job in Ripon. I said I'll start tomorrow. A job? In a partnership. You might have heard of it, Harvel and Carter. They need someone who understands industrial law. You do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Oh, don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And of course I'll have the weekend. We'll discuss this later. We mustn't bore the ladies. What, what is a weekend? <laughs> <laughs> that may be the best line in the whole show. Oh, you are nice. Um, of course, she did it so wonderfully because the, the, some <laughs> a lesser actor would have thought, oh, this is a great line and done a sort of handbag on it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Maggie throws it away at that, what, what is weekend? Uh, which was brilliant for me. It, it came, uh, it's a quote from a great aunt who used Your it. Your great aunt. Yeah, my great aunt, who used it quite deliberately to put someone down. And so uh, it was because, as you know, in those days, uh, the upper classes referred to what we call the weekend as a Saturday to Monday. 
And even though it ran usually from Friday to Tuesday, but never mind that. <laughs> um, and weekend was seen as a working class phrase because it was comparatively late in the century that they had time off. They had a day off after 1860, a day off a week, uh, which the employers used for maintenance so they could live with it. But Giving them two days off was much later than that, uh, and it was called the weekend. Uh, but it was seen as a, a rest from labour, and so uh, it wasn't a term. It, it crept in after, you know, into the sort of 30s, uh, and by the end of the Second World War, it was standard. But at that point, she would have found it not unknown. She knew exactly what he meant, but distasteful to think she was sitting in the Downton dining room with someone who used the word weekend. Julian Fellows, thank you so much. I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately, alas, alack, we can't. And uh, you have places to go and people to see. But thank you so much. No, what a pleasure. You. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. I don't know about you, Brian, but that was such a thrill for me partially because I love just listening to someone who has such a facility with the English language. I mean, I didn't understand half of what he said. <laughs> That's but I not really true. Liked, I'm kidding. But I really loved listening to him because he's so incredibly eloquent. He is. He's one of the most articulate, wry, intelligent people I've ever had the privilege of sitting in a room with. I think and, we have a man crush in the making. Oh, we already had a man crush. <laughs> I mean, just with the Savile Row suits. But uh, I was going to say, I was also struck by how pointed he is about politics, um, which we, you know, just discussed. And he takes a number of controversial positions. And, you know, I think it's great when people in the arts actually stand up and be counted. But he sure as heck would not bite when it came to Donald Trump, which I thought was interesting. And, you know, you kind of have to respect the guy for that. He clearly had parameters and he was going to stick to them. And he also stuck to his guns, mostly when talking about the queen and the royal family, because his wife is actually a lady in waiting to a senior and somewhat controversial member of the royal family, Princess Michael of Kent. You are such an Anglophile, Brian. Yeah, but guilty as charged. <laughs> you really are. But thank you, thank you, thank you to the BBC for inviting us to London for our first pod trip across the pond. Let's try saying that three times fast. And thanks also, as usual, to our team at Stitcher, Gianna Palmer, who's with us, Nora Ritchie, who sadly is not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nora. And Jared O'Connell. I don't know. I feel okay about you not being with us. <laughs> no, I'm true. kidding. I'm kidding. We miss Jared. And also to our terrific engineer here, Lee, from Silk Sound, for recording us today. I, of course, want to thank my Katie Couric Media Power Posse, Allison Bresnick, Beth DeMoz, and Emily Bina. Katie and I are the executive producers on this show, and Mark Phillips is the melodic mind behind our <laughs> theme music. And remember, we love hearing from you, so please drop us a line, I think as they say here, at comments at couricpodcast.com or ring us at 929-224-4637. We'll take comments, praise, guest ideas, constructive criticism, all of it. Just trolls, stay away if you can. The line and our hearts are open. Have a very lovely Independence Day weekend, everyone. And to our British listeners, thank you. We're no longer a part of you, but we still love you. Thank you for listening, here, everyone. Here. <laughs> it's so exciting. We have a special guest here, Jill Apple. Jill, you reached out to me on Instagram, I said did. you were a fan of the podcast. I said, come and watch the taping. So we're going to be very self-serving here, Jill. Why do you enjoy our podcast? <laughs> Tell I, us how wonderful we are. <laughs> I do love it. I just recently moved from New York to London, and I feel like it's a little bit of a slice of home, plus it's informative. And I remember the first week I was here, I was riding on the double-decker, and I was listening to the Sheryl Sandberg podcast in my pod, my whatever you call them, ear pods, and just sobbing because it was very moving, and I was hooked, and I immediately downloaded all the others, and now I listen to them. I love the Danny Meyer one and the Frank Bruni one, and I especially like the Amy Schumer one because she's hilarious. And oh, well, thank you so really much. I'm so glad you reached out. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, good luck in London. Thanks. And thanks for listening. What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues 
talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts.